So we pick up in Job in chapter 28, and we'll read that entire chapter. Job 28, all 28 verses, give your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Job 28. Surely there is a source for silver, a place for gold that they refine, Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limits. The ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. As for the earth, out of it comes bread but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Stones are the places of sapphires, and it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beast have not trodden it, the lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it's not with me. For it cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come, and where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. He looks down to the, looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So if you had an entire year to travel the globe, you would find that there's no shortage of wonders you could visit. For example, you could snorkel over the Great Barrier Reef, hike the stunning slopes of Mont Blanc or riverboat up the Nile. Though on your worldwide itinerary, a good dose of your destinations wouldn't be natural beauties, but human achievements the art in the Louvre, the archaeology of the British Museum, and the aircraft of the Smithsonian. 
for the accomplishments of, of the human race are rather astounding. Man has walked on the moon, split the atom, and outraced the speed of sound. And now, with the development of AI, the horizon of human advancement appears endless. Some today even brag that with AI, nothing will be impossible for us. Curing all disease, beating death, and eliminating poverty are all within our grasp. And surely, human technology is impressive and powerful. And yet, despite all this fancy science, are we better off as a species? For in many ways, the Internet seems to be making us dumber, not smarter. As a country, we are richer than ever, but we're also more depressed and lonely. Technology has made folly more contagious than wisdom. And this dilemma makes you wonder, is human advancement an accurate measure for wisdom? And Job takes up this, uh, this question to di- disclose to us where wisdom is found. So a layer of sabbatical dust lays upon our memories that needs to be brushed off. Besides, a proper understanding of this 28th chapter requires that we remember where we're at. Thus, this long therapy session between the three amigos and Job has wrapped up. Bildad was the last counselor to speak in chapter 25. Job, then, has bested the arguments of the three to leave them silent. And with them, and as a loss for words, Job has now launched into his closing arguments here in chapter 27 and 28. Yet these two chapters are two parts of the same speech. And in chapter 27, Job took flight with an oath of integrity and innocence. With hand raised to heaven, he swore that he had spoken nothing false, and he promised to never let go of his uprightness. Contra all the accusations of the friends that Job was some notorious sinner, Job took an oath to seal his righteousness. Then he progressed to chide the friends for speaking vanity. All their syllables were hot air, their arguments futile, and their reasoning misguided. So he told them to sit tight, and he would teach them. The student would become the teacher to these incompetent counselors. And Job's lesson began in chapter 27, verse 13, by rehearsing and summarizing the thesis of the friends. So in verses 13 through 23 of chapter 27, these were Job quoting and paraphrasing the logic of the friends, which was basically the retribution principle. The lot of the wicked is to suffer for their sins. Therefore, chapter 28 picks back up from 27, verse 11 and 12. It belongs to Job instructing the folly of his companions. Remember, a regular issue in this long conversation has been who is wise. The friends claimed a monopoly on wisdom, but Job was not convinced, and so now in chapter 28, he'll prove it. And he opens this segment of his speech by mentioning four valuable metals. There's a source for silver, a place for refining gold, 
iron is taken from clay, and copper is smelted from stone. A clarification, though, needs to be lodged here. The word in verse 1 does not mean mine. That is, the imagery here is not about the mining industry. Instead, what is portrayed here is a quest for something precious, an extensive search into the farthest, most remote regions of the earth. Thus, he opens by stating how humans know how to harvest valuable metals. They can locate silver, refine gold, and smelt copper. But humans are not content with these ores, so they, might, they must find something better. So in verse 3, the search reaches out to the farthest extreme. And yet there's a deliberate ambiguity here in verse 3. Now the ESV supplies man as the subject, but this is not an original. Job merely puts a bland he. But who is this he of verse 3? Well, from the human activities of verses 1 and 2, it seems natural to think that the subject is human. However, the actions of verse 3 have a divine loftiness to them. To put an end to darkness? This sounds like the work of God. To trek to the edge of the world? Can a man do this? Job, then, impresses upon us as readers an intentional awkward ambiguity. He holds us in suspense for a moment. Who is this person that should be a human but's playing at God? Next, though, he drops the object of the quest. He identifies the goal of this odyssey, namely the ore of gloomy darkness, or better, the gem of deepest gloom. The crusade to the extremes is seeking this gem of darkness. People know how to locate gold, but there is a gem of dark mystery that is more precious and more secretive that still must be discovered. Of course, this exploration exploration favors a human subject as nothing is hidden from the Lord. But this lofty endeavor seems to be fueled by pride, and hubris. Of course, what is this gem of deep darkness? Well, we're not sure. The poet again captivates us with unanswered question. And the suspense of our curiosities place us as if we're in the search party. It's as if we are fellow travelers on this daring voyage for this gem of the deepest mystery. And the expedition extends from verses 4 through 11. First, the captain of this trek opens up roads to the desolate realms where humans have never trod. Literally, these are the forgotten lands devoid of wandering humans. Now, in the ancient world, there were the inhabited regions of the world, and then there were the unexplored parts barren of any human touch and filled with dangerous mysteries. This captain, though, is plowing forward into places where no human has ever been. And what does he find in these empty lands? Well, he comes upon a land that yields food all by itself. It is as if it was refined by fire so that its pebbles are lapis lazuli. The dust that gathers on your sandals is gold. 
No falcon has ever spied this place. No eagle has spotted it. The lions tread it not, and proud serpents know it not. And with this, the nature of this quest comes into focus. In the ancient Near East, a common endeavor for kings and heroes was to travel into the unknown realms to find the paradise of gods in order to unlock its mysteries and riches. Think of it like the search for the fountain of youth or the lost city of Atlantis. Thus, we actually have records of Assyrian and Akkadian kings bragging of traveling to the remote and rugged regions. They scaled jagged cliffs where no winged bird flew. They uncovered the sources of the Tigris River and the secret places where the gods dwelt. Or in the Gilgamesh epic, Gilgamesh and Enkidu attain the cedar mountain, the dwelling of the gods, a land full of delight, abundance, and divine secrets. Hence, the captain here strikes the flinty cliff, He moves mountains, he cuts channels in the rock, spies every precious thing, and dams up the sources of the rivers. In fact, this line in verse 11 for the sources of the rivers, or streams, comes from Ugarit as the place where the god of El made his abode. Thus, what is painted here is the quest of the heroic king trekking into the inhabited places to unearth the secrets of the gods, to find that gem of deepest mystery. So this expedition is salted with pride and peppered with hubris. It is the best and brightest human, the great philosopher king, attempting to discover divine honors. And this journey is not unlike, then, the building of the Tower of Babel human achievement to reach the gods. What we find here is expressed in Proverbs 25, verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. This is the search of a king for an enduring glory. And we cannot deny some impressive accomplishments here. The hero cut through mountains He examines the rarest gems, the most exotic trees, and priceless metals. He puts on the map the headwaters for the majestic rivers. The scientific discoveries and advancements in knowledge here are rather awe-inspiring. Hence, this quest is not an antique of the lost world, but it's still alive and well today. In fact, man's search for divine glories is very modern and progressive. At this very moment, there are billionaires planning to build their own utopias where scientific knowledge will even best death. Trips to the moon and Mars have the hope of unlocking more secrets to improve our condition. Human ingenuity and pride is still reaching for the stars, just like the ancient kings of old. The question is, though, Is this expedition successful? Did this hero king find what he was looking for, that gem of deepest gloom? Well, there were many advancements, but did the journey hit its target? And the answer is given in verse 12. But where 
shall wisdom be found. The place of understanding was yet undiscovered. This both asserts that the quest failed and it identifies the gem of deep mystery. The hero was seeking wisdom. Wisdom is that precious stone of unfathomable darkness. The gold was unearthed. Luxury valuables were seen. Secrets were brought to light. But wisdom was not found. And wisdom here has a very holistic value. It includes supreme knowledge and the best skill in order to gain everlasting life and eternal glory. It is the competency and perception to be God-like. And yet the hero's grand achievement ultimately turned up empty-handed. He did not find wisdom. For as it goes on, wisdom sits not in the land of the living. The home of wisdom is not located on this terrestrial ball. Not only is wisdom absent from the lands of the living, but it's missing from the deep, Great deep waters below. As it says, the deep cries, it's not in me. The sea states, not here. Now back in the day, wisdom was often associated with the lower places of the cosmos, the dark waters under the earth. In fact, deep and sea here are names for gods among the nations. The pagans thought that the gods of Tehom and Yom, the sea god, were masters of wisdom. But Job says, no way. The foreign gods have not wisdom. The mysteries of the deep blue do not house understanding. Therefore, the best and brightest of human achievements fail when it comes to figuring out wisdom. Nevertheless, we homo sapiens are a resourceful bunch, and we don't give up so easily. Thus, what we cannot find we can always try to purchase. Thus, the next section of this poem, in verses 15 through 19, Job lauds lauds the priceless value of wisdom. And he gives us a mini world tour of items of the greatest worth. The treasures here are exotic, foreign, and extravagant. Several of the names here are foreign loan words from Egyptian, Akkadian, and maybe even Sanskrit. From India to Nubia, these gems are traded and shipped. From Afghanistan to Arabia, the crystal, a costly crystal and rare pearls come to market at the highest price. For us today, this is rare French wine from Bordeaux, a Lamborghini from Italy, a penthouse in Dubai, and jade from China. And yet all these international luxuries have no currency for wisdom. You cannot buy wisdom with diamonds. Wisdom cannot be traded for a yacht. No castle or mansion can be put up for wisdom. For wisdom is way too costly to be measured in pearls and silver. It trades on an entirely different marketplace. A dime bag of wisdom is worth more than all the money in the Swiss bank accounts. And again, how well this encapsulates our preoccupation with money. We love to think that money can solve all problems. Everything is for sale. Everything has a price. And if there's a problem, a need, or a dilemma, 
just throw money in it, and it's all good. Students pay extravagant tuition to become wise. Entrepreneurs invest billions to obtain wisdom. And yet all the money in the world cannot buy a pinch of wisdom. Sometimes the richest person is the biggest fool. And to show that this effort to barter for wisdom is vain, Job again recites the question, where is wisdom found? What is the locale for understanding? Wisdom is hidden from the eyes of the living. It is concealed even from the birds of the air. Indeed, wisdom is so elusive that not even death and Abaddon know its home address. Now, the God of the world, death says, I've only heard a rumor of wisdom. Now, again, Job's contemporaries considered wisdom to be found in the realm of death in Sheol. But here, the Lord of death admits that wisdom is mere hearsay to him. The ancients prayed to their dead ancestors for, for wisdom. Heroes travel to the gates of Hades to steal some wisdom, but it is all in vain. In Sheol, wisdom is but a rumor, hearsay. Therefore, wisdom again is out of the reach of everyone. Birds cannot see it. Kings cannot find it. Billionaires cannot buy it. Even the gods of the underworld are ignorant of wisdom. However, all this vain effort and striving, the failed quest and the worthless treasures, uh, success appears, though, uh, appears in verse 23 with a change of subject. After all this vain searching, we read God. God understands the way to wisdom. The Lord knows the home of understanding. What is impossible for humans, what is out of reach for pagan deities, the Almighty holds in his hand. For God sees all things, and he knows everything. No ignorance belongs to God. Nothing is outside of his all-knowing vision. Even the darkness is as light to him. Wisdom is not the prerogative of master kings. It isn't the expertise of pagan gods, demons, or magicians. But wisdom is the alone possession of the Almighty, the Lord. And what is the proof that God is the master of wisdom? Well, he's the creator of all. God put wind on the scale. He measured the waters with his ruler. Rain and tornadoes follow the rules and procedures of the Lord. Here we see the Lord measuring the immeasurable. He counts the uncountable. Hurricanes and rainstorms are kind of the poster child for the chaotic and unpredictable. Even today, weathermen are more wrong than they are right. And yet, wild weather follows the orderly statutes of God. Thus, having weighed the unweighable, God is the master of wisdom. Verse 27. The Lord saw wisdom, he counted it, he gauged it, and he searched it out. Man's searching, back in verse 3, was for naught. But God's searching reveals reveals him to be the Lord of wisdom. God knows wisdom inside and out. He uses wisdom with perfect timing and accuracy. He is the wisdom genius, the expert on everything wisdom. 
Thus, by verse 27 here, wisdom is portrayed as a transcendent thing. It is the treasure that money can't buy. It is the secret that death and the deep know not. It is the gem of deepest darkets that humans cannot discover or find. Rather, wisdom is the precious of God alone. Wisdom is the sole possession of God, and he shares it not. Again, the proverb, the glory of kings is to discover secrets. God's glory is to keep secrets. And so the surpassing glory of the Almighty radiates forth as he keeps wisdom hidden all to himself. And yet, just as we despair of wisdom as a heavenly unknowable, God makes an exception. The silent wisdom of God speaks out. He said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. God barred wisdom, God barred humans from finding wisdom by their efforts. He excluded wisdom from being purchased. And yet God chose freely to reveal wisdom by his word. The contrast here between man's proud efforts and God's gift to reveal wisdom is stark. What humans cannot earn or merit, God imparts as a gift in spoken revelation. And the wisdom granted to us humans is the fear of the Lord. Now, fear of the Lord includes reverence and awe. It is veneration and worship. The foundation of fear is knowing that God is the all-wise creator and we are limited creations. Fear entails the humility not to attempt for ourselves divine actions and honors. The godlike actions of the hero kings are proud efforts to seize the glory of God for oneself. Fear, though, knows better than even to try such an arrogant quest. And fear is the trust that God is wisely in control and that we are not. Furthermore, wisdom also encompasses turning from evil. It seeks to live uprightly according to what what is righteous and to flee the wickedness of sin. Wisdom, then, is us venerating God as God, humbly accepting our human limitations, and it is walking in uprightness with God, and stiff-arming evil. True wisdom is not found in great scientific achievements, but it is the bended knee before the Lord God. Wisdom is not something we conquer, but it is the gift of God accepted by fear and obedience. This is profound. And yet, this definition of wisdom is not Job doing abstract theology. Instead, it fits into his arguments with his friends. Central to the debate has been who is wise, the friends or Job? Well, now Job defines wisdom in a way that is a self-description. To fear God and turn from evil is precisely how Job was introduced to us by the narrator in chapter 1. 
More so, this was how God described Job from heaven in chapters 1 and 2. Job defines wisdom in the same way that the narrator and God himself describe Job, which is a double approbation of Job. Job is not being self-deceived here. He isn't even blowing his own horn, but he's giving a sober amen to the accurate words of God and the narrator. Therefore, Job's closing arguments disclose him to be the wiser one. He has wisdom, and his friends do not. Indeed, just as this definition of wisdom shines a good light on Job, it also exposes the folly of the friends. For it likens the friends to those arrogant kings who attempt to steal wisdom by their own hubristic efforts. For what have the friends done? Well, they didn't just call Job a loquacious fool, but they presented themselves as having the secret wisdom of God. For they insisted over and over that they knew the hidden providence behind Job's suffering. And the special wisdom that they voiced was the retribution principle. Sin explains everything happening to Job. He sinned, and so his, uh, he is suffering. Thus, he re- if he repents, stellar restoration is quickly around the corner. They dogmatically drew a line in the sand, saying and claiming to be wise that rich retribution is the divine wisdom that reveals what is behind Job's loss and agony. But such proud bragging of being wise is no different from the hero kings who attempt to win heavenly wisdom and fame. Their retribution read of providence that they flaunted as supreme wisdom is false. Indeed, Job just undressed it as foolish hubris. And the lessons from this chapter for us are manifold. One, the vain quest of of the hero king reminds us to have a healthy dose of skepticism and denial towards the scientific hubris of our day. It is not hard nowadays to find wealthy leaders of industry bragging that our knowledge has no bounds. Experts say that AI will give us a godlike knowledge and by it we will live forever, cure all ills of society, and create a paradise where the dust is gold under our feet. Yet all the brilliance of science is folly when it comes to wisdom. Secondly, money cannot buy wisdom. Like the world around us, we are prone to think that money can solve everything. Wisdom, though, is not traded on the stock exchange. It is worth more than all treasures. We cannot buy wisdom. Third, the friend's read of providence by retribution was the same as the proud journey for wisdom. And we are ever prone to read providence and be dogmatic about our reading. Thus, this poem on wisdom reminds us, do not read providence. 
And even when we can discover some cause and effect in providence, we should hold to our conclusions lightly and with humility. Just because we can identify a speck of cause and effect, this does not mean it explains all that God is doing. We have a one-track mind, but God's wisdom is a magical multitasker. He can do many things at once and all going in various directions. Furthermore, this definition of wisdom should force our eyes to behold our Savior. For what is the supreme product of wisdom? It's eternal life and everlasting glory by perfect understanding. Well, by human efforts and works, this wisdom is impossible. But what is impossible by human deeds is given by God through fear and obedience. And who perfectly feared the Lord and turned away from every atom of evil and sin? Jesus Christ did, which was testified to by his death and especially by the approbation of his resurrection. In reverence, Jesus humbled himself to the Father's will to drink that cup of wrath. Like Job, but perfectly, Christ was the ideal righteous sufferer. When evil was all about him, Jesus was righteous to the end. No deceit was upon his tongue, no hatred in his heart, no pride in his soul. Even though he was equal with God, Jesus died the abject death of a slave upon a tree out of fear. And for his fear and obedience, Jesus merited the resurrection, the name above all names, and the everlasting glory promised by the Father. Thus, in Christ, we see the wisdom of God for our salvation. We behold true understanding over against all the proud folly of the world. And in Christ, we come to experience his grace to make us wise like him, fearing the Lord and turning from evil. You do not need to climb Everest or spelunk into the deepest cave in order to find wisdom. AI is not wisdom for us. Instead, wisdom is God's gift that grace works in us as we fear him and walk in his ways. We are wise when we trust in Christ alone for salvation, and our faith grows in wisdom when it fruits in good works of love and gratitude. Therefore, may we praise our all-wise God. Let us sing hymns of joy to Christ, our wisdom unto salvation. And then may we pray for the grace to also be wise, to fear God more and more, to turn from evil with more consistency and sincerity. For in the word of God, we find the wisdom of God that is sufficient for our faith and for our life. Thus praise the Lord that he is wise and he holds us in his hand. Amen.